Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Listening to Jim Paris Live, your source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right, hello everybody. Welcome to the broadcast. Of course, we are live on Sunday nights. Great to have you with us. Even though it is the dog days of summer, we are still live for you here most every Sunday night from 9 to 11 Eastern. Uh, we also we do a, we do an hour live, and then what happens is we kick into one of our recent best of shows. So we've got two great hours lined up for you tonight. In our guest segment is author Joe Horn, and we're really excited to have him. I tried to get him booked a few months ago. He had a book out on on health and fitness, which is terrific, and we're going to still try to get him to come on and talk about that. But tonight, this is a really interesting book. It's titled Everyday Champions, Unleash the Gifts God Gave You, Step into Your Purpose and Fulfill Your Destiny. And I was just watching an interview with Joe Horn a few minutes ago, and uh, it's really interesting what he has to say about spiritual gifts. And sometimes the spiritual gifts that we seek are not the spiritual gifts that God has given us. And that's a whole interesting discussion in and of itself, but what are the different spiritual gifts that God may have given to you, and how do you find that out, and how do you use those gifts for his kingdom? All of that tonight in our guest segment, coming up in about 28 minutes, author Joe Horn is here. I have to tell you, um, this week, oh, by the way, next week, we will not have a live show, because I am going to be in Miami next weekend doing a live event with George Norrie. Now, if you're someone that lives in the greater Fort Lauderdale, Miami area, I will be doing a live appearance, which I don't do many of these anymore because of the internet and all that is available uh, with YouTube and live streaming and Facebook. You know, as I've gotten older, I don't like to just get on a plane and (laughs) fly into these big cities and do live events anymore. There's a lot of headache involved in that. And I just assume you know, enjoy the beach here, enjoy my beautiful town that I live in and uh, connect up with a, you know, a little uh, live stream on Facebook here and there and and do this radio show, of course, and do YouTube. But I am doing a live thing. It is going to be next Saturday. And I think the ticket, there might still be a few tickets left. The last I checked, it was pretty darn close to being sold out. And uh, it's a big event. It's like 800 people in this theater. It's George Norrie, the host of Coast to Coast AM, myself, and then there's a couple of other guests. And uh, I've never been to one of these, but I understand it's going to be quite a a night. He's got a live band there. They even uh, have a little surprise, which I guess I could share it with my audience here. They told me to bring my trumpet because I'm going to be playing the trumpet at some point in the show. George is going to be singing. uh, So, you know... uh, Wake the kids and tell the neighbors. This is a big thing happening next Saturday, that is July the 27th, and 
you can go to the Coast to Coast AM website, click on events. That'll just take you to Ticketmaster where you can get tickets, which I think start around $50 for those people that want to be at that George Norrie event. I will be staying afterwards to kiss babies, sign books, take pictures. <laughs> if anybody is interested in that, I'm sure most people are going there to see George and not me. So I'll sort of blend into the background with the curtains, uh, probably out in the foyer area after the show. But in any case, I will be there to talk and sign things and take pictures if anybody's interested. All right. Where are we going with the show tonight? The, the open segment that we typically cover several different topics. I have to tell you, after I did my show last week on Jeffrey Epstein and looked at the reaction, uh, we have had thousands and thousands of downloads of the show that I did last week. And as I said before, Jeffrey Epstein, this is not a new, we're not just jumping on a bandwagon here like a lot of the media. We've been talking about Jeffrey Epstein on this show now for several months. And this was really bound to happen. But I have to tell you, I spent, I spent the week putting together some interesting information. And tonight, what I'm going to focus on in a minute is this whole issue of Jeffrey Epstein's second identity. Yes, he has a second name and a second identity. He also, uh, what was discovered in his home when they did the raid of his home in New York, they found a passport that said he was an Austrian citizen with an address, a residence address in Saudi Arabia. So we're going to get into all of that tonight. But before we get into that, there's a story that I saw this afternoon that I still cannot wrap my brain around. And I know I use that phrase a lot when I talk about Jeffrey Epstein. But just think about this. This is years ago when Jeffrey Epstein got that sweetheart plea deal that caused Alex Acosta to resign from Trump's cabinet uh, in recent days. And by the way, if you didn't hear the news, Epstein was denied bail uh, on Friday. So he's stuck in jail there in New York until his case goes to trial. But, but get this headline from insider.com. This is back during the day, uh, the days of him being in that 13 month private wing of the Palm Beach County Jail that was his sentence for this mountain of evidence of him abusing underage. Uh, I, when I say underage women, I get a lot of flack from people. Let's just say minors. They were minors. They were females under the age of 18. Uh, fair point, listeners that have uh, made that point in sending me emails. But get this headline. Deputies were told to leave Epstein's jail cell door unlocked. And then they were paid, the same deputies that were guarding him, were paid to provide private security to him when he would leave the jail, which he could leave the jail 16 hours a day. He was allowed to go to his home, to his office. He could even just walk around Palm Beach uh, County just for exercise. Um, but talk about a conflict of interest. The deputies guarding him were also paid as his private security. And I made fun of this last week when I talked about the Andy Griffith show and Otis, the drunk that would come in and take the key and unlock the jail cell, put himself to bed and then get up in the morning and let himself out. I, I joked about that. Little did I know that's actually <laughs> what was going on here uh, during this ridiculous 13 month uh, sentence. And, and here's what I always go back to when I see something like this. 
Is that the same treatment that you or I would receive if we were convicted of such a thing? Absolutely not. And there has just got to be some major, major investigation into this whole matter. But I just found that to be beyond beyond belief uh, that he was in jail, but the cell was left unlocked. I mean, talk about ridiculous. Okay, so I want to get into this tonight, this question, which more and more people are asking, is it possible that Jeffrey Epstein was a spy? And if he was, what government was he a spy for? Was Was he an intelligence asset for? Now, This is not a conspiracy theory because we know that Alex Acosta, when he was being interviewed before he was given the position uh, on the Trump cabinet, he was asked about this case. And he was the uh, U.S. prosecutor for the Southern District of Florida, during which time this ridiculous plea deal that everybody's talking about, that this plea deal took place. He was asked about this, and Acosta said that he was told to back off from Epstein because he was, quote-unquote, owned by intelligence, that he was an intelligence agent. So this is not something manufactured from whole cloth. But get this. So more more and more information is coming out about what they discovered when they went into Epstein's home with a search warrant. And I want to share with you some of this because it's, it's bizarre. It's beyond bizarre. So in addition to finding literally cataloged, apparently reports are thousands of nude pictures of minor females. And they're cataloged with all kinds of details about each picture, just to kind of ratchet things up about the kind of guy we're dealing with here. And then it says here, the home also included such oddities as a hallway covered with artificial eyeballs originally made for wounded soldiers. What? A life-sized female doll hanging from a chandelier, a chessboard with custom figures, many dressed suggestively, and on and on and on. Now, Epstein's net worth, it it came out because he had to file a financial disclosure when he was applying to get bail, which he was denied. His net worth is $560 million, according to reports. However, that just doesn't add up to me, that it, it could be that little. And I mention that because He has $200 million in real estate, and I'm going to mention what his real estate holdings are in just a moment. But just if you think about the cost of maintaining that real estate, the property taxes, uh, the maintenance, the staff to maintain that real estate. And then when you go on to deal with the cost of maintaining, I believe he has two different private planes. Uh, When you operate a private plane, just for like every hour it's in the air, it's five or ten thousand dollars to operate that plane while it's in the air. Not to mention the expenses of of acquiring the plane and the ongoing care and feeding and maintenance and and staff and crew and all that. There's no way the guy has only five hundred and sixty million. However, 
the money is spread out in a, a as many it says here as 30 different shell companies that own his real estate, his airplanes that hold his assets all around the world. Now, some of the real estate that you may have heard about, some of it you may not have heard, but he owns several properties. Get this. He has a large ranch in New Mexico. He then has the New York City townhouse, which apparently may be the actual largest single residence in all of Manhattan, 21,000 square feet in downtown New York City. He then has his own private island, Little St. James Island, which is off the, uh, the coast of the U.S. Virgin Islands, off of St. Thomas. He also has a Paris, France apartment, and then he has the infamous Palm Beach home. All of that real estate value estimated at over $200 million. And there's so many weird things. Uh, one, for example, that no one can answer is obviously where does this guy get his money from? There was a lot of talk about him being a hedge fund manager, although everyone in the hedge fund community says he's not a hedge fund manager. For starters, he doesn't have any of the Securities and Exchange Commission filings that you would have to have to actually be in the money management business. And it would seem to me that the bigger question here is not just what his assets are, which he had to disclose for the bail hearing, but where does his ongoing income come from? And just some of these bizarre things, like, for example, uh, the founder of Victoria's Secret, Les Wexner, apparently deeded the 21,000 square foot home in Manhattan, deeded it to him in the 90s for zero. What? I mean, that's something, I guess, if it was a family member or something like that. But, I mean, even so, the value of that single property is presently something like $80 million, just that one single property. And it was just given to him for zero. But let's get into this whole matter of him possibly being an intelligence asset, being a spy. And this may, again, it's going to sound like a conspiracy theory, but get this. When they went into his home in New York and executed the search warrant, when they found all the pictures, all this other stuff, they found an Austrian passport. So it was issued by the country of Austria to him with his picture on it, however, a different name. And get this, he lists his residence address in the passport as Saudi Arabia. And then when you go on to look at where he used, this is, if, you, if you've traveled abroad, which I know many of you have, you, on your passport, they stamp your passport when you enter, when you exit. And so they, they, this passport reportedly has, was used heavily during the 1980s, including for trips to France, Spain, the UK, and to Saudi Arabia all under this fake alias name with this passport suggesting that he was a Saudi citizen and this passport was issued from Austria, or maybe that he was an Austrian citizen that had a residence in 
Saudi Arabia. But let me tell you, I've got sort of a side theory on this. I'm wondering more and more what this guy's connection is to Saudi Arabia. And we already know, if we look at um, this recent murder of the Washington Post writer, that even our own government kind of turns a blind eye to horrible things that the Saudis do. And here's a guy who is a, I mean, for, for decades, I mean, it's, it's the documentation is there abusing uh, uh, underage females, children, minors, teenage girls, uh, whatever term you want to use to describe the situation, a pedophile. And yet he gets this tiny little slap on the wrist sentence, which is laughable. And then all these years later, even though that activity allegedly continued on and on and on, he's finally, it's finally now catching up with him. And I just have to wonder, and I throw this out, I'm curious your thoughts, post on my YouTube channel after I post this video, post on my Facebook, send me emails, jim at christianmoney.com. Could there possibly be a Saudi connection? So if Epstein was a spy or is a spy, could he be connected to Saudi Arabia? Now that would explain all the money, right? Because the Saudis have so much money uh, keeping this guy in private planes and owning an island and all this. This would be nothing. This is like change you would find in the couch uh, <laughs> in the, the royal kingdom of Saudi Arabia. These people are flush with money. This would explain an awful lot if there is a Saudi connection. Um, and I am just still sitting on pins and needles. I cannot believe the names that are probably going to come out that had connections with Jeffrey Epstein. Now, we've already seen what some of these people are doing. They're saying, well, I flew on his plane, but I never got involved with the underage girls. Or I had visited the island, but never when there were underage girls there. So you're already starting to see the denials. But when you look at people that know Epstein, know him personally, know of this part of his lifestyle, whether they were in actually physically involved in those things or not, you still have to um, really, um, I guess, bring judgment to their doorstep anyway for just having an association with a guy like this. Now, the media is doing the very best they can to try to hang this around Trump's neck and trying to really gin this up into Trump is, according to the media, like this guy's best friend and he's at the island all the time. And what they're confused about is that's not Donald Trump, that's Bill Clinton. That who who is really the, the closest confidant of all the names I've seen, of all the names I've seen in terms of number of trips on the plane, trips to the island, all of that stuff, associations with Epstein, it is Bill Clinton. It is not Donald Trump. Granted, Donald Trump does have some connection to him, but it seems to be somewhat minor. I mean, after all, NBC had to go back to like a 1991 video which is what 30 years they had to go back <laughs> go back 30 years to find a video of Trump with Epstein and that was like a really like you know breaking news we went into our archives and 29 years ago we found this video 
of Trump and Epstein together dancing with girls at a party at Mar-a-Lago. Okay. I mean, you don't have to go back that far to find evidence of Bill Clinton's involvement, but yet we don't hear anything about that. Let me tell you one of the more interesting or most interesting things I uncovered this week. And in order to find this, you've got to go online and you're going to type in this Google search phrase, Alex Acosta 2011 letter. Type that into Google, Alex Acosta 2011 letter. You will find this in a couple of places. This is a letter that Alex Acosta wrote in 2011 to explain why he went along with the Epstein plea deal. And when you read the entire letter, you sort of can figure out what's going on here, which is that he was trying to, with this public letter, inoculate himself from what actually just happened to him, that down the road someday, if he's up for some big position, that this would all be brought out and he would then be taken down by it. And this letter was intended to sort of be his defense and put this out there years and years and years beforehand, before he would need this. It didn't help him at all. But I found fascinating an article, uh, a, a paragraph from this letter. Uh, a couple of paragraphs that I want to read to you. Read the whole letter because you'll find a lot in there. And I'm going to probably talk about this letter again next week. But this was written in 2011 by Alex Acosta, who's now resigned from the Trump cabinet. And this was his defense for what happened. And I want to just read these two paragraphs to you. And there's just so much that jumps out at me here. But, but here we go. This is Alex Acosta in his own words. Uh, this is uh, excerpted from the 2011 letter. After considering the quality of the evidence and the additional considerations, prosecutors concluded that the state charge was insufficient. In early summer 2007, the prosecutors and agents in this case met with Mr. Epstein's attorney, Roy Black. Mr. Black is perhaps best known for his successful defense of William Kennedy Smith. The prosecutors presented Epstein a choice, plead to more serious state felony charges or prepare for a federal felony trial. Then get this. Here we go. What followed was a year-long assault on the prosecution and the prosecutors. This is Alex Acosta speaking in the first person. He says, I use the word assault intentionally as the defense in this case was more aggressive than any which I or the prosecutors in my office had ever previously encountered. Mr. Epstein hired an army of legal superstars, Harvard professor, professor Alan Dershowitz, former judge and then Pepperdine law dean Kenneth Starr, former deputy assistant to the president and then Kirkland and Ellis partner Jay Lefkowitz and several others, including prosecutors who had formerly worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office in South Florida. Wow. I mean, the one thing, I, just so much in there, but the fact that Ken Starr, the Christian man Ken Starr, the conservative Ken Starr, the one that brought down Bill Clinton, well, he was the sitting dean of the Pepperdine Law School, 
he was involved in this case defending what the, the evidence was clear uh, uh, about what Epstein was up to. And I just shake my head. Alan Dershowitz. Now, Dershowitz is, is a guy who um, he'll get into any bed uh, as, as, as far as these criminal defendants. He was on OJ's uh, defense team, just as an example. Um, so that doesn't surprise me. Um, and he's, but, but Kenneth Starr, Kenneth Starr as the sitting dean of Pepperdine University, that he was involved in this case. And what is described here by Acosta in his defense, which I, I consider this letter lame, and I don't give him a get-out-of-jail-free card because of this letter, but it does outline what was going on here. This was more than just a defense by lawyers and law firms and big names. As he put it, this was an all-out assault on the prosecution and the prosecutors. And in the same manner, they were uh, threatening to go after the victims of Epstein that would be testifying. So what we have here is really a textbook case. Rich guy, lots and lots of money, hires all the right lawyers, and gets away with this. That's exactly what we have here. And shame on some of these names, in particular Kenneth Starr, who I have lost all respect for when understanding the extent to which he was involved in this. I cannot wait, and maybe it'll be just this week, when more than 2,000 pages of documents from the prior civil case, uh, from the prior uh, case, the, the criminal case, are to be unsealed and released to the public. And I'm wondering if the government's going to try and redact and hide names. If we have pedophile rings in this country of rich and powerful people, whether they be in business or in politics or in the pulpit or wherever they may be, this has got to stop. I, I, I get it. If you're rich, you get to eat better food than me. If you're rich, you get a bigger house than me. You get to drive a nicer car than me. You have someone that takes your garbage cans out to the street. You don't have to do that yourself. Those are all the privileges of being rich. But one of those privileges is not raping young children, raping minors. That is not a privilege of being rich. And it appears to me that there are two sets of laws and two justice systems in this country, one for the super rich and one for the rest of us. And I, for one, am sick of it. And uh, I want to see how far this goes. You may think I'm a conspiracy nut to even suggest the Saudi connection, but I'm not the one that brought it up. This is a passport found in the search of Epstein's home that, that has a, an alias. We don't know what the, the, the name was he was using, but he had a name. Uh, on a passport from Austria, and he had a residence listed on that of Saudi Arabia. And he traveled uh, throughout Europe, France, Spain, the United Kingdom, and Saudi Arabia all throughout the 1980s. And uh, get a load of his flight. It, it, another thing to look at is the last 18 months of the movement of his private planes. It is unreal. In, in fact, I, I did the math on it. His private planes are in the air 
one out of every three days, he's flying off to somewhere. One out of every three days. And you just have to ask, where is this guy getting the money from? Just to operate these private planes, it's thousands and thousands of dollars an hour. You got pilots, you got gas, you've got the maintenance of the plane, all of that. And and he's got he's 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 almost living on these planes. He's traveling so much. What is he doing? Nobody knows where his money comes from. How does he earn his living? Where did he get all the money to have all of this real estate that he has now? You would think someone could get his tax returns and start digging into this. I really believe this goes very high up. Very high up. I don't know how, how high up, but I would not limit this to uh, I would not limit this to levels below presidents and prime ministers. I think it goes all the way there, and we're just going to have to see what comes out. But uh, uh, man, oh man, it, it, it is it is probably one of the most fascinating legal cases that I have seen in my lifetime, and and something that our justice system should absolutely be ashamed of that a guy like this could get away with this for so long. And this last plea deal is beyond a joke. As I said at the beginning of this segment, he was put in uh, his own private wing of the Palm Beach County jail and the guards were told not to lock his cell. And he only had to stay there eight hours a day. And the same guards were paid privately to be his security detail the other 16 hours while he was walking around town. I mean, it can't get any more ridiculous. All right, we are done with our first segment. I'm going to go ahead and refire the open. We'll be back with our special guest, Joe Horn, the book Everyday Champions. I am super excited about this. Stay tuned. We will be back in one minute. <laughs> 